Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on HighTruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website, isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org to follow the science on marijuana. Hello, High Truth listeners. I'm always excited to join you in trending conversations. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. We will talk about drug trends today, but first I want to tell you about legislation that I worked on this year. Mind you, I'm just a full-time doctor and part-time podcast host. I have very exciting news and disappointing news. The very exciting news is that California Governor Newsom signed SB 864, Tyler's Bill, into law. The law will require all California hospitals to include fentanyl whenever a drug test is ordered. This was my first piece of legislation that I wrote and carried through the legislative process. I received almost no opposition and had bipartisan support. It's a no-brainer legislation. Shouldn't all hospitals test for fentanyl when they test for methamphetamine or cocaine? You'd think so, but a large study by Epic, the electronic health record company, showed that only 5% of overdose patients are tested for fentanyl. We fixed this gap in California, and I hope this takes on a national trend. On the other hand, I hope other states stay far away from our California trends when it comes to marijuana. I supported and testified in favor of SB 1097, the Cannabis Right to Know Act. The bill would have required warning labels on cannabis products. Before watching Star Wars, you will see a warning sign about flashing lights. However, the cannabis industry effectively killed the bill that would require warning labels on their mind-altering products. Who was in favor of warning labels on marijuana? Emergency doctors, pediatricians, OBGYNs, community activists, and parents whose children died or were injured by high-potency THC products. Who was against warning labels? The cannabis industry. Our legislators didn't follow the science. They followed the money. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Good morning. My name is Dr. Kevin Zakharoff. I am the course director of pain and addiction at the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University in New York. 
Thanks so much for taking my question. My question is, based on the research, what do we think the impact will be on the clinical relevance of urine drug testing in the management of patients with chronic pain? Thanks again for entertaining the question. Thank you, Dr. Zakharoff, for your question. And I'm sure you have your own opinions as a pain and addiction expert at Stony Brook. But I appreciate your question as a great lead for our experts today with Millennium Health. Millennium Health is an accredited specialty laboratory with experience in medication monitoring and drug testing services. To talk about monitoring prescriptions as well as illicit drug trends, we have two experts from Millennium. Dr. Eric Dawson, a pharmacist and vice president of clinical affairs, and Dr. Stephen Pasek, a doctor of psychology and vice president of scientific affairs and head of the clinical data programs. You can find Dr. Eric Dawson and Dr. Steve Pasek's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Steve Pasek and Dr. Eric Dawson, welcome to High Truths. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank Pleasure you. to be here. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you and to learn from you in our conversation ahead. Can you tell us, I want our audience to get to know you a bit, your career path that led you to your expertise in drug trends and your work with Millennium Health? Steve? Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for the opportunity, um, Ronit. So I'm Steve Pasek. I'm a, pain, I'm a psych, clinical psychologist by background. And prior to coming over to the lab industry, I was... Uh, uh, I had a 25-year academic and clinical career. I was most of that time was spent at Sloan Kettering, but also had some time at Vanderbilt and the University of Kentucky. Um, I was originally um, on a path towards um, training in addictions, and um, and and then um, a close friend uh, passed, got sick with leukemia, and passed away and died. And and during that time, that was quite an influential. Uh, uh, period in my life and a, an event that happened because I decided to switch gears and I, instead of continuing on, on, on a, in an addiction fellowship, I went across the street. I was at New York Hospital to Sloan Kettering and, uh, and, and then did two years um, of fellowship learning about the psychological and psychiatric care of people with cancer and chronic pain. Um, but because it was 1987, it was the height of the AIDS epidemic, I uh, got pressed into service because the hospital for the first time, and this was a hospital, by the way, where expanding the use of opioids for pain was being really uh, ushered in. But for the first time, they had a population of people who also had uh, you know, terrible pain syndromes. I mean, back in those days, AIDS really was AIDS with you know, opportunistic cancers, et cetera, et cetera. And, and uh, they needed someone who knew something about managing pain and substance abusers. And I, I honestly, I didn't know thing one about it, but it was, it was a good opportunity working with some pain experts to, um, to, to uh, uh, kind of on, do some on the job training. And I ended up um, with a second career on being, you know, always fascinated with issues on the sort of borderline between pain and substance abuse. And, uh, um, and then uh, after 25 years, I came over to industry. I've always been in interested in opioid safety. So I gravitated towards um, a urine drug testing lab initially. I also spent some time trying to work with some pharma companies trying to develop safer opioids. 
Um, but then when I started seeing in my emails, the stuff that Millennium was doing with their aggregated data, which was something I wanted to do when I was with the company the first time, but they didn't have the capacity. And then they had developed the capacity, thanks to Eric and a lot of my present colleagues. I, I, was, I couldn't wait to come back and join the effort. You went full circle and really inspired by your personal life events. Right, exactly. Eric, how about you? Yeah, I'm actually a pharmacist by training uh, and started working. Uh, this would have been, I guess, early 90s as a clinical pharmacist, actually working for a department of surgery. And so I saw consequences of drug use in the form of trauma patients. Um, and did that for a number of years, and 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 then you know, found my way into research and into doing a lot of presentations, and then eventually into the pharmaceutical industry where I've worked since. Um, really became interested in pain when I worked for a company named King Pharmaceuticals. We were actually working on one of the earlier forms of these safer opioids. This would have been 2007, eight, nine, somewhere in that range. Uh, we were working on some abuse deterrent opioid formulations. I think that's probably where I came to first meet Steve uh, at the time. And, and from there, found my way. I, I became very interested in working with those physicians, very interested in the space, pain and the intersection of pain and substance use disorder. Of course, this was at a time when all of the focus was on prescription opioid, excuse me, um, use and overdose. Uh, but Found my way from there into the lab space and have now been at Millennium for about 10 years, I guess. And it just, I don't know, just become more and more committed to our work daily uh, as everybody on the team, I feel, is given what we're seeing in all of our communities. I mean, just here locally, there was a, a young lady that died just two days ago of a fentanyl overdose, a 15-year-old girl. My younger daughter's 15. So this touches all of us you know, in all of our communities. And so we're absolutely committed to try to do whatever we can to help those that like yourself that are really on the front line fighting this to fight a more uh, effective fight. Yeah, so you, you've really seen the whole issue of opioids in, in a historical perspective and also on the front lines in, in research and, and drug development. Um, and I, I um, <laughs> You just don't get used to it. I mean, tell me a 15-year-old girl who died, um, it's it, it's such a commonplace occurrence that it doesn't even hit the news, and it, it should because it hits our hearts. It's just terrible. I'm so sorry. Um, Dr. Kevin Sakharov, a physician that you guys are well acquainted with, pain specialist and educator, asks about the clinical relevance of drug testing for chronic pain patients. Um, what's your take? Steve? So I, uh, you know, I, I have to say that long before I ever came to work with a urine drug testing um, company, I had, I wrote my first ever paper on drug testing and its role in pain management in like 1989. And, um, you know, from the very beginning, when people were running around trivializing the risks of broader opioid prescribing was, you know, because the rhetoric in those days was quite, you know, the, the risk of addiction is less than 1% and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, essentially telling the world we need to 
treat pain more aggressively and use opioids and there'd be no consequences for it. Well, of course, that's silly and ridiculous and got things started going in the wrong direction. It didn't smell right even back then. It didn't pass the sniff test. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, they would they, they used to love to, you know, they used to love to quote Porter and Jit, you know, 198, 19, uh, uh, 80 um, New England Journal of Medicine paragraph long thing where they surveyed like inpatients who got a little bit of opioid during a, an inpatient stay, probably for a short period of time. And they said that out of 11,884 patients, only four had documented drug addiction uh, in that experience. And, you know, that's 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 an information about exposure, low dose, short term, inpatient stay, non-addicts, you know, et cetera. And, um, and, and, you know, that, how could you take that data and say, and we're gonna generalize that to the entire population, including 27 year old polysubstance What, what a mistake, right? Yeah, ter terrible mistake. You don't take a small population, you know, positive or negative results and apply it to the entire world. No. And, and there were a, there was a handful of us right from the very beginning that was saying, look, we have to take the principles of addiction medicine and apply it to pain management. So that doesn't mean that everybody is at equal risk if exposed to opioids, but certainly they're not at no risk either. And, and, and it's on the clinician, you know, to assess each, each and every patient. And then design a, you know, the decision to prescribe opioids, the medical decision, you know, is, is, is only one part of it. The other part of it is, how am I going to deliver opioid therapy to that patient? And, you know, how often will I see them? Can they handle a month's worth? Should they get an opioid that's harder to, perhaps harder to abuse? How often should I check the PDMP? How, how often should I test their urine? So that, you know, some people are going to need the kitchen sink. And some people are going to need a much, uh, you know, a, a lesser approach. But because I think our healthcare system puts so much pressure on doing it fast with the least experience, you know, with with the least expert doctors, the least number of tests, the least number of, of consultations, etc. I think most people ended up getting their opioid therapy in like a once once a month visit with a non-expert for eight minutes with no testing and no psych. And I think, you know, for the sliver of the pain population that that works well for, it worked well. And the rest, it was the kind of predictable disaster that it turned out to be. So I think urine drug testing, along with PDMP, along with psychological interventions, et cetera, are absolutely crucial in chronic pain. The art is how do you do it without breaking the bank? How do you do it and make it scalable? How do you do it like in a way that every patient gets all those other tools and techniques um, tailored to their level of risk? And I have to say, I ran around talking about that for 30 plus years till I was blue in the face. And, and, I, and I don't think the, you know, I don't think it ever became the standard of care, unfortunately. And hence why the I think the pendulum ultimately then swung so far in the direction of like, well, we got to avoid opioids because we can't do them safe. I don't yeah. think that's true, but I, 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 but I we I, hear that, right, Steve? We hear that. Yeah, we heard it just on a, a conversation we were having earlier today. You know, physicians said there's absolutely no reason to prescribe an opioid. Period, and was adamant about that fact. Uh, so we know you, you had a doctor say that you never need to prescribe an opioid for the rest yeah. of their career. Right. Well, I wonder if they're saying that 
out of fear. Yes, um, I think uh, so. Yeah, be, well, I mean, there's a justified fear for in the medical community, um, and it's gone both ways. Historically, I remember doctors were afraid of not giving opioids because doctors were sued for wrongful death and um, and not not death but suffering um, for not prescribing and opioids. Elder abuse. Right, and elder. That's right. You're right. It was elder abuse um, for not prescribing pains, and that shook up the medical world. And it's and and laws were passed that pushed us to prescribe. And now the opposite is happening. Now we have you know the medical board of California sending 500 letters to physicians for their prescriptions from 2014, before there was really CDC guidelines threatening their license. So these doctors are scared. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the case with this physician, just trying to play back and and how long she's been a physician uh, and the period of her training was probably taking place. Residency was probably um, earlier in the last decade. And I think that's when so much of what you just described, when the hammer was coming down and everybody was scared to prescribe and all of these things were happening that were negative toward physicians and patients, quite honestly, alike. I think that's probably the message that she was hearing uh, more than any other. There was, you, you just know, cannot do this. You're, we try to make medicine so cookie cutter. And then I think when government intervenes in medicines, you have to prescribe, you shouldn't prescribe, or whatever it is government does, they muck it up <laughs> because there's no one size fits all. And appropriate prescribing, I call it Goldilocks, you know, not too much, not too little, just right. Opioid prescribing is down 44%. The idea that we'll take opioid exposures all the way down to zero is, first of all, impossible. And second of all, kind of a recipe for sadism and patient abandonment. And yeah, everything. right. That's abusive, right? Right. And, and so, you know, I wish we would devote in policy and in other settings as much as much time thinking through uh, how to make every opioid exposure that does take place as safe as possible. Um, instead of just always focusing on trying to drive the number of exposures down, I mean. Well, I I would I would I would um, I'd actually add to that. Take it off opioids. We should have we should talk about safe prescribing, safe pharmaceutical, safe safe supplements, not just opioids for everything. Because whatever you're saying about the lessons we learned with opioids, we could learn that with benzodiazepines or sleeping pills or anything else. Yeah, so true. And and so, you know, we had, um, we have a paper that just came out that looked at our, uh, our patients that, you know, urine specimens that came from patients in pain management settings in our very large database, like 600,000 urines. And, um, and in fact, you know, the, this sm now smaller opioid treated population treated by spe in specialty care, where they probably, you know, get more multi mul mul uh, multimodal care. They also get possibly better, possibly, you know, better drug selection, better drug optimization, et cetera, et cetera. But also where they've been monitoring patients through urine drug testing, through PDMPs for years. And in fact, the population of people that's left on opioids now is doing remarkably well from the perspective of consistent urines with very low rates of illicit drugs. Now, some people might take that to mean, well, do you really have to continue to test them and whatever? So, you know, and, and I, I think, in fact, that along with all those other factors, the monitoring has played a big role in why they look as good as they do. Huge. And by the way, that was Dr. Uh, Zakharoff's paper, right? Um, 
looking looking at um, select group of pain patients and show that they were very compliant and not using illicit drugs. But I I caution the interpretation of of that data, right? Because then people would say, oh, just like you said, Steve, you don't need a drug test anymore. Um, but you have to understand that patient population is a very compliant patient population. You know, years ago, I, I published a research called the Death Diaries, where I looked at every single person who died of prescription medications in San Diego County, and I looked at 12 months of prescriptions before they died, and I also went through the painstaking process of looking up what the specialty was of every single doctor. And I really learned that the pain, spe- I thought it would be the pain specialist. God, those pain specialists are giving so much opioids, um, and it wasn't. Um, it was primary care doctors, emergency doctors who had the doctor shoppers, uh, repeat visitors. And the highest number of prescriptions per bottle was actually not the pain doctors. It was the surgeons. They gave them, you know, three months of pain medicines and kind of like, you know, we're done with our surgery and we want to be done with the patient. Um, so I really learned a lot that the pain patients, they have to follow the rules. They have to sign agreements, get drug tested, check PDMP, and if they stick with that pain doctor, they're very compliant. So I was not surprised by the results of the study, but I fear the results of the study because that could people could say, okay, now we don't need to do drug testing or monitor anybody with pain, but without realizing, again, that that's a very select population. Yeah, and I, I would also add that we, we also have a poster at Pain Week um, that was just presented last night, uh, which will ultimately culminate in another paper. But I just wanted to add, you know, say that we, um, we, we compared a group, we actually had a large number of urine drug test samples from people seen in pain management, but who are not being prescribed opioids. Um, and um, and this goes really to the point you made earlier, Roni, which is, uh, so, so in any case, we compared people on opioids to people not on opioids. We removed everybody on Suboxone and Methadone and anybody that had an SUD diagnosis. And as it turned out, the, the substance use was low across the board, but it was higher in people not prescribed opioids. And so I, I don't think the answer is no opioids. I, I, I think the answer is safe prescribing with, with, the, with the right use and the sort of tactical use of the tools that we have to keep people safe. So I want to understand the, the study, the poster that you just mentioned again. One more time, people with... Yeah. Seen in pain clinics, but who for some reason are not being treat, treated with opioids. And so you have to ask yourself, and we don't know the answer because, you know, we are these people with like a pain stimulator or something or could could very well be right. So that's or nerve blocks. Yes, it could be anything. Right. And 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 maybe the reason why they're still being tested was because they had a more remote history of misuse of drugs. We don't really know. Um, We tried to account for that, though. Right, Steve. I mean, yes, we we did remove everybody from that study over that population that had any uh, diagnosis of SUD. Right. But still, to your point, it's possible. An SUD, substance use disorder. So yeah, right. in a pain clinic patients who are not getting opioids and don't have a substance use disorder, what are you finding? That that the patients who are not prescribed opioids had a higher rate of use of non-prescribed and illicit drugs. Than uh, those prescribed. And those who were prescribed. In, right. So if we think that the way to protect the pain population from drug use is to avoid opioids in everybody, I think this 
this it, it's suggestive we don't know that much about these patients you know we have a wait, very wait, large... yeah it's something sounds fishy me there because maybe that's why they weren't given opioids because their drug screens were positive and the doctor was resistant to do that that's absolutely possible um or they, they had which is more remote than what we have in our database yeah um and, and we're going to do this study now. We, we did this with Monica Holbein from Penn State, and she's a palliative care physician. We're going to do this study next as part of a grant with her clinically now. We're going to do it right. This is just sort of suggestive, but you gotta, you're absolutely right to highlight that um, uh, there may be all kinds of reasons why, why this finding came out the way it did. But right. you know, the way we wrote it up in the poster was not prescribing opioids to these, to these patients doesn't automatically translate into some kind of protection from substance abuse. But it also goes to something else you said earlier, which I think is really important. I think the risk of drug abuse and whatnot is in the population. It's in people, it's in their desperation, it's in their histories. It's not just about what drugs we're exposing them to in pain management. And so, you know, one of these days we, we might get a little more enlightened about this and realize that like a certain amount of drug testing needs to be uncoupled from the prescribing of controlled substances. Um, well, I, I think what we've learned is, what we've learned is supply matters. Right, in, totally. uh, right. So supply matters. So when we were supplying, when the medical community was supplying opioids like crazy on the population, we got an opioid problem, right? A prescription opioid problem. Now we kind of shut that down. And what is in the supply? In the supply is methamphetamines and fentanyl. And, and so that's, you know, so controlling the supply, I think, also... Um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's all of these things that you all are talking about. In fact, since the paper has come out, we've had an opportunity to uh, spend some time with a couple of different large pain groups, and they're verifying everything you're saying. That th These groups are now monitored. There's much more uniformity in the monitoring, you know, using all of these different tools. Um, there's a much more, to your point, Ranit, there's a, there's a greater desire on the patient's part to remain adherent to everything they're being asked to do um, under the care of that pain physician, and they're doing it. But it's it's not. It, but it shouldn't lead anyone to think that there's no need for monitoring. I think it demonstrates the utility of the monitoring, and that's what we're hearing from these pain physicians. Right. You know, I I, I learned that you can't judge patients by how they look or behave, right? Because I'll think, oh, this guy, she's compliant or he's oh, he's going to be an abuser. And um, you can't. As if you've, I've been a doctor for 30 years and you you, you can't. You, you, sometimes you just need to do the monitoring. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we can't lump these patients with other types of patients. One of the things we looked at specifically what in the paper was we looked at a period of time of pre-COVID to COVID. Right. And we've looked at that in other populations, and you've probably seen this in the lay press, it's been everywhere, that uh, drug use has escalated dramatically. Um, well, guess what? In, the, in this pain population that was evaluated in that paper, when we compared the pre-COVID to the COVID period, you don't see any difference. Right. Because, again, I think that population that goes, that has a pain doctor, first of all, they have a pain doctor, they've been able to keep the pain doctor because they're following the rules, because otherwise the pain doctor will just kick them out, you know, if they're not following the rules. That's a very compliant, I think, a very compliant population. Yeah, um, and it tells me it's possible, right? And, uh, you know, 
Yeah. And, you know, Roni, what you mentioned about the shift, you know, we've now we're what we're on like our third or fourth wave of the opioid uh, overdose problem and epidemic and, and all that. And, and, and that's what, you know, drew me back to the company is looking at this. I mean, it was a stroke of genius. I, I think uh, both on, from the technology side, but also on the parts of Eric and Penn Whitley, our statistician and all these. Did you hear that, Eric? He's calling you a genius. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's right. We're going to come back <laughs> but, to that point. And, uh, <laughs> to, to realize that, you know, they were sitting on a resource that could be helpful to collaborators and to government and to society at large that like, you know, to start aggregating the data and mapping it out geographically and start really kind of making this data available to people to try to show where, you know, now that the emphasis is not on the prescription drugs anymore in terms of overdose, like where is fentanyl, where is meth, how much are they commingled? You know, I, I, I was quelling um, when I used to see these <laughs> I used to see their signals reports and stuff coming across in my emails. And I was like, I got to get back there and work with these guys again. Yeah. So you're you both work for Millennium Health that does a lot of drug testing. Um, so let's learn a little bit about your operation. Um, do you run your own labs? What do you do? Is it a lab? Yes, it's a lab. Uh, we have urine drug testing as well as oral fluid uh, testing. We're located in San Diego. Uh, I believe we're the largest of specialty lab of our type in the United States, something we're very proud of. And to Steve's point, that gives us the opportunity, you know, what I guess on the commercial side of the business they see is thousands of samples coming to the lab every day. Us on the clinical side, we see is thousands of data points coming to the lab every day from, you know, all 50 states. And so it's afforded us this opportunity to really pay very close attention to these trends and report on them in a very timely manner. Our, the, all, you know, we have some wonderful people in the lab in San Diego and they're committed to turning these results around typically in 24 hours or so. So, you know. So do all the specimens come to San, the lab in San Diego from around the world or you have multiple labs? Uh, from around the country. From they around do the country. Come, all come to San Diego. Okay, so they're all shipped shipped right here next next to me. And who are your clients? I would say it's a mix. Um, probably more than any, it's uh, substance use disorder providers, whether that be inpatient treatment facilities or outpatient. But there's also probably a, probably a close second would be these pain physicians that we're we're just speaking of, primary care physicians, behavioral health, OBGYN. I mean, there's the the list is long, but it's it's, uh, I'd say the top, you know, three or four are SUD providers, primary care, pain, behavioral health. And what are the tests that you test for? Do you do like a CBC and chemistry panels or you focus just on drugs and which drugs? Uh, just, just drugs. Now we do some special, uh, specimen validity testing, right? So we're doing that piece of it as well. Uh, so that's your creatinine pH, though, that battery of tests, but it is just drugs. And it's, I mean, it's hundreds, you know, of drugs in total. Uh, it's everything you would think of. I mean, the illicits of concern, the pre prescribed drugs, whether we know them to be um, abused or not, um, you know, it, it's a lot of different analytes. In fact, we just added a number, you know, there's just so much evolution in the U.S. drug supply right now. We're always working to stay very relevant with our testing. And so 
we just launched some new drugs uh, in the last month and have a couple other launches planned before the end of the year. And do you also do the genetic testing? You know, that was a big thing that pain doctors do to find out if you're a fast or slow metabolizer. Maybe the pain medicines that you're taking aren't working for you because of your genetics. Yeah, we did that when I came to Millennium and we did that for a number of years. We're not doing that currently. We still have the opportunity to um, make some decisions related to a patient's ability to metabolize certain drugs because we look not just at the parent drug. Uh, so let's use the example of oxycodone. We don't just look at oxycodone in their urine. We also look at the oxymorphone, which would be that 2D6 pathway metabolite, and then the noroxycodone, which would be the 3A4. And, and you know, we have a team of incredible toxicologists that are seeing all of this data daily, and, and uh, they do have the opportunity. In fact, we'll make comments on reports if we see those concentrations of metabolites as they compare to the parent, if they seem, if they seem abnormal. Uh, we'll make some comment on that for the physician that they may want to investigate further related to genetic uh, ability. That's great. And then you, you mentioned because you're doing um, how many how many specimens a day or a, a year do you? Yeah, I, I don't I don't see the daily numbers. It's it's thousands every day, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not probably millions in a year, I would guess. Wow. So you're really able to see a, a lot of um, specimens and do what you talked about um, is seeing trends emerging um, threats and intelligence program, which you have. ETI is a program. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So um, to your point, it is, uh, I guess we'll call it a product or a, a data set where we evaluate these timely trends. We pr primarily look at elicits, but we have the ability, quite honestly, to look at anything we would be testing for. But for the most part, our partners have asked us to focus on things like fentanyl, methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, the fentanyl analogs, of course, are very important. And then fentanyl combined with cocaine, heroin, or methamphetamine. So uh, that's generally how our reports are arranged. We look at, you know, we can look at any uh, period of time. I mean, currently, for the most part, we'll provide like a six-year analysis of trends, six months, and then we provide what we call a recent versus historical. We'll look at the recent month. What, what do we see in some state or some county within a state or the nation uh, for the current month for any of these analytes? And we'll compare that to a previous time period. We're really there, we're looking for signals, you know, uh, and we report all of that. Currently, uh, our partners are HHS, uh, the Ohio Department of Public Safety, Columbia University in New York, because they're the coordinating center for the state of New York for healing community study. And we're in discussions with any number of others. It's just been, it's been wonderful to work with these folks. I'll tell you, it's, uh, you know, like I described the story a moment ago of this 15 year old girl. I mean, every day you see terrible news related to this, right? In fact, I find so many times anywhere I go to present, I find that I'm the bearer of bad news in many ways as we look at our trends. But what I can also tell you is there's an amazing number of extremely talented, incredibly committed people, uh, many of which are our partners that are doing everything, everything they can to try to lessen the toll that substance use is having. And that's within our 
government partners. Also, we have a number of academic partners. Uh, I'll, I hate to say some of the names because I'll leave out others, but you know, it's it, it's it's a number of them, and they're all just terrific. And what are you finding from from your your threat intelligence? Yeah, so I would say you know, it, it depends on the analyte, of course. But I would say in the last, if we want to, you know, talk about the last two or three years, let's say twenty nineteen forward. We have seen a, a dramatic shift of fentanyl moving west. I'm sure you've seen that in your practice. You know, fentanyl entered the country for the most part in the white powder heroin supply that dominated the eastern half of the U.S. If you go back to 2000, probably 15, 16, maybe even a little earlier than that, but somewhere in that time frame. Since that time, we have seen, especially in the last couple of years, we have seen an unbelievable shift westward in fentanyl positivity. In fact, we reported on that in our signals report that we released earlier this year. And I know we, we look at US Census divisions, the Pacific region, if you will, um, when we compared 2019 to 2021, we saw over a 400% increase in fentanyl positivity. The Pacific region where you are um, had the highest positivity gain of any region in the country. The nation as a whole gained about 150%, if I remember correctly, but the Pacific region was over 400. So we have seen unbelievable movement of fentanyl west. Now, we've seen gains in every corner of the country. Um, in terms of methamphetamine, it's been a very similar story, but you simply flip the country. Historically, we think of methamphetamine being in the central U.S., you know, predominantly now, again, all of these things are everywhere, right? But you know, predominantly in the central uh, U.S. and then out west. Well, now we see, we've seen unbelievable gains out east. The largest gains were in the New England region and in that part of the country. And, and of course, more and more, the biggest story, I think, is polysubstance use. That's the combination of fentanyl being found with methamphetamine or with cocaine or with heroin. We reported in signals uh, in our, think about this, in our heroin positive samples. Over 90% of those are now positive for fentanyl. I mean, it's, it's, you almost can't find heroin with. Yeah, her her heroin is old school. You know, heroin requires agriculture and fields and poppy plants. That's, that's old fashioned. Now you got to go to that effort, right? Yeah. Why? I mean, well, you, you can get a, a room in somebody's home in, in, in Mexico and put a couple chemicals together and you got a lot more potent. It's a, it's not good economics anymore. Now, we hear now of uh, uh, fentanyl-free heroin being sold as the safer heroin at a premium price, but I'm hearing that more and more around the country. Um, so, you know, it's it's been amazing, this movement of fentanyl and this movement of methamphetamine, and then the combination of the two. But with that said, I tell you, the one that I still keep such a close eye on is cocaine. Uh, I don't think cocaine gets its due respect. In our signals report, cocaine and fentanyl were the only two drugs that we saw gains in every region of the country. The cocaine gains were not as significant as fentanyl, not even close, quite honestly, but there were increases in every region. And the percent of the cocaine positive samples that are now positive for fentanyl is upwards of probably 40% or just over. Uh, you know, it's nearly half, right, of our cocaine positive samples are positive for fentanyl. So I keep cocaine 
front of mind because I know unlike methamphetamine and fentanyl, cocaine in many areas is still just a weekend recreational drug. And I hear those stories all the time um, of somebody purchasing what they thought was cocaine. I'm sure, I mean, I've heard the stories in Southern California. I think it was two or three surfers uh, earlier in the summer or last summer. They purchased what they think is cocaine. It's a, they overdose on fentanyl. Uh, I heard a couple of those stories last week at one of the the schools here in Alabama. They don't just overdose, they die also. Yeah, exactly. Right. They're dying. Right. And they're dying in the presence of others. So you're without Narcan available. I mean, there's there's so much to learn from just that simple story in that tragedy. And to to, to that point, you know, one of the things that our group has done, and I know you have seen this paper, Rooney, we we did a thing that that was recently published in JAMA Network Online that showed how tightly correlated our aggregated urine drug test results are to mortality statistics. Um, and so, so you know, we, we basically showed how, I mean, these correlations are kind of almost unheard of for public health, social science, 0.8, 0.9 correlations with mortality, because as you said earlier, it's all about the supply. So we think that our drug test results, now mind you, these are people coming in to for substance use disorder treatment, and, and yet it predicts the whole community because it's a, it's a measure, I think, yes. of the extent to which the the community is saturated with what they're saturated with, with fentanyl mostly in this instance. Right. And so now the work that we have ongoing, uh, we did that with our colleagues at Ohio State. And the thing that we're doing now is trying to develop a predictive model where we we really want to see, can we show where there's likely to be a spike in mortality in, I don't know, a month, two, three, to give people that could intervene enough lead time to do something to try to save some lives before all these overdoses happen. I I think these drug trends are very important to me as a clinician to know how I adjust my practice. And uh, I was introduced to that from the medical examiner and, and doing that type of research. But now I chair a task force called CREDO, Community Response to Drug Overdose. And uh, these are high-level people throughout San Diego County, from law enforcement to public health um, to our um, overdose uh, teams that go to the front lines uh, every day. Uh, We have two and a half deaths a day, sadly, in San Diego County, um, and do immediate drug screening. And and what we're the data that we're gathering looks at medical examiner report sheriff seizures and what's happening in hospitals. And that gives us kind of a 360 degree view to figure out what the trends are. And I'm wondering if you use those trends in your drug testings. For example, mostly on the East Coast, we haven't seen this in San Diego, but xylazine is a new drug trend, not the drug, uh, you know, it's just mixed in the fentanyl or the uh, nidazines, which are even stronger. Um, then fentanyl, if you can imagine that, are you, are you looking at those trends and working those into your drug screens? Yes, absolutely. Yes, that's right. Yeah. We, as Eric said, we just added about 11 new drugs, which included some of the designer benzos and some of the more frequently found uh, fentanyl analogs and, uh, schedule. We have a couple more updates to the panel scheduled, uh, for the, the remainder of the year. And xylazine is definitely in our uh, on our radar and it's going to be in one of the updates. Right. So you must always, I mean, you'll probably have to change your, your screening like every year. Yes. Yeah. If not multiple times, right. That's yeah. 
Yeah. And to right. your point, uh, your question, like, you know, what else did we use? I think the thing that made the what we call the correlation work, this JAMA Network Open uh, presentation or, or publication that Steve mentioned, so remarkable. And with that work, we just looked at definitive UDT results and assessed the, those results against uh, overdoses, looking at correlation. It was just those results. Now, with our what we're calling the prediction work with Ohio State, we are taking into account all of these other data sources available to us because they all are of value. We just see, I think, the niche that our data plays is one, it's a unique population that's not captured in, in, in any other manner that I'm aware of, this SUD population, but also it's the timeliness of it. The fact that I can literally update the data daily, right? Uh, and what I have seen with some of these other data sources, they've definitely gotten better. I've been you know, pleasantly surprised to see some of that, uh, which has been probably a significant lag time uh, for years. I see that shrinking and that's terrific to see, uh, but it's still not quite as timely. So I think all of these together give us the best. Right. Yeah. We, put, we put this data into, you know, it depends on how we're working with people. For some people they want, you know, some people are, actively trying to combat the problem in some states. We're giving them the reports. Eric works with the Ohio authorities to show them what's the latest in their Ohio report. But then we also have people that want to just get the raw data from us, put it into a data lake and start sort of trying to figure out how it how it works with other data to do this predictive work. And, um, um, you know, that's updating every night. I mean, I, I could tell you, that when I was with pharma, um, again, working for some companies that were trying to develop some safer opioid products, um, I worked alongside the regulatory people because we had these post-marketing you know, uh, study requirements to see if our drug was getting abused in the community. And there were some great sources of that information, but they that data comes out every three to six months, not getting updated nightly. So while our data has some warts, like any data set does, like, you know, for example, our blanketing of the country is not complete. We have some states where we have a lot of tests and some states where, where, where there's, you know, kind of a Swiss cheese effect going on. We're trying to come up with statistical and other methods to, to kind of cancel that out uh, and, and account for that. But um, I think, as Eric said, the timeliness of it, especially when you're trying to deal with a problem that's morphing in front of your eyes all the time um, is, is probably its big, is one of its, its biggest virtues, I think. Yeah, but I will tell you, and you made this point earlier too, Renit, like the, the utility of this for you as a clinician to know these trends. I've even heard stories of these maps that we've produced being used in group therapy sessions, you know, uh, counselors holding them up for those that are early or maybe not early in recovery saying, listen, you know, here's what's in our community. There's never been a more important time for you to stay engaged in your recovery because of what we're seeing with some of these heat maps that we show. Yeah. Uh, and that's just, you know, I've heard so many wonderful stories about how the data is utilized things from, you know, validating uh, distribution channels, you know, like I as, you know, live in the Southeast. I've been told that our report seems to confirm um, what is is believed to be the case in terms of trafficking patterns that things move up through the port of New Orleans and then into Baton Rouge across I-10, you know, and, and connects into Florida and everything. And just, we see that, we see those progressions in our reports. 
It's just, it's really been amazing. I, I, I agree. I think it's very important um, to connect that with the medical community. I don't think it's being done enough. Uh, my listeners know that I am very jealous of infectious disease. I'm jealous of COVID, of Shigella, or I can always get all this attention um, in a public health space. And yet the medical community is not getting that same information with the same intensity at all when it comes to fentanyl or other drug trends. And I I think that we need to do that um, because people are dying as much now or more from fentanyl than they are of COVID. Yeah, yeah I think you're exactly right. And I noticed when I was looking at back at some of the previous uh, podcasts, you had one of my favorite people on the planet, Nora Volkoff with NIDA. And we uh, work with not just Nora, but with Radonna Channel, just an incredible team there. And I've heard them speak at length about trying to mimic what we've been able to do with COVID, right? In terms of right. standing up these very timely dashboards that we all, I mean, it, you, you know, everybody in the country there for a while was looking at these, th these things daily. And I think there's some great lessons that we can learn there from COVID uh, that we could apply exactly to your point that we could apply to this substance use crisis. Yeah, that that's right. On that episode, I even asked her, I said, are you jealous of COVID? And she's. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing, right? All, I mean, whether you had any medical training or not, we all every day, every my, my mother, my, you know, everybody's looking at what the what their little area of the world looked like that day with COVID. And the data was almost that timely. And I think we can do that with substance use. Yeah. And, and we should, and people look at it differently because it's a chemical, it's not an infection. But I think as far as prevention and treatment, we could still apply those same infectious disease models um, that, that, that do well. They really do well for us in infectious disease. We should be doing that um, um, from, from the whole spectrum, prevention, supply, treatment, education. Um, what about drug testing is controversial. It could be expensive. Um, can you give us a, a history about that controversy of the expense and is, is it solved? Is it still a problem? You want to speak to that, Steve? Sure. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people um, still think back to, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. There's no question that there was a period of time when, um, you know, when, when I was, when I, let, let me start this way. When I first started out, um, you know, the only kind of drug test I could get, I was working around people who were being prescribed opioids all day, every day. And the only kind of drug testing I could get was an immunoassay test. And if I needed LCMS or GCMS, it came back weeks later. And explain that, because I don't think our audience understands the, the difference of those type of tests. Yeah, so an immunoassay test is 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 quick and dirty um or it has its value because it's quick it can be done right in the office and um but it's also it's also testing that's often giving results on a class level rather than on a specific molecule or drug um if you're working for example with a pain population who are being prescribed opioids um you want you, you don't want a, a drug test that just says the person has opioids in their system, you want to know if it's the oxycodone that's being prescribed by your clinic, or if it's their neighbor's hydrocodone who thought they were doing them a favor by lending them a tablet when they ran out or something like that. And so um, there's, you, you know, the, the, what happened was, I think, you know, you go back, uh, uh, maybe 10 years or so, all of a sudden, people figured out kind of how to mass produce 
um, liquid chromatography tandem mass spec. And people had this incredibly accurate, valuable tool that could test for, as Eric said, hundreds of drugs. And there's no question there was a period of time when the tests were over, the, the testing was being overused. Um, there, was a, there, was, there was some profiteering going on and people got some ridiculously expensive, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of bills and things like that. I think our company um, has been working in the last five to seven years to revolutionize our practices and the practices of the industry as a whole. And now you're talking about tests that are driven by guidelines. The selection of the panel is driven by guidelines. And, um, and, and we work very carefully with our customers to make sure that, they're, they're, that everything is medically necessary. And we're, you know, we're, we're, ta we're talking about you know, now a drug test that averages, I don't know, in the $100 range or $70 to $100 range, not, not anything like what, what used to go on. Now, you know, a clinician would still have to make a decision. If I'm gonna you know, do an office-based immunoassay test, um, you know, that may be 20 or $25. Um, so, you know, when do I need the accuracy? When do I, when can I wait to 24 hours? When do I need the much more precise result? Um, you know, because immunoassay testing is, you know, and with a confirmation only for the positives, you know, that's kind of based on a model of like a population of people that shouldn't have any drugs in their system, for example, like an airline pilot. And they, you know, and the worst thing you could do in that setting would be to have a false positive. So if it comes up positive for something they're not supposed to be on, you send it for confirmation. When you're dealing with populations of people who are prescribed buprenorphine or prescribed opioids for their pain or things like that, um, the false negatives are, in my view, are a lot more problematic because that's the patient who, you know, who, who may be combining drugs and everything unbeknownst to you and, 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 and in some danger of overdose and so on. And so, you know, I think um, I think immunoassay has its place. Uh, possibly more in other forms of testing than in a, in a clinical or pain clinic setting. But I also think that, um, that, that, you know, there's been a lot of work done to manage what tier of testing the patient is getting now. And, and, and uh, you know, the seven analytes, 15 analytes or whatever being tested, uh, which in turn, you know, when it's driven by medical necessity, as, as you know, the costs are now a fraction of what they used to be. So really, we're talking about two different drug tests, because I work in a hospital, and we only do the screening. Um, we don't even have access uh, to the mass spec uh, testing that, that you do. That's a, a send out. By that time, the patient's out of the hospital. doesn't doesn't do me any relevance. And I think that that also explains the, the cost difference, right? Because to do that, it's um, it does more. Do do your clients have to ask for every drug separately, or it comes in a set panel? Uh, it's you no, know, it's every drug separately. Mm -hmm. uh, we we do very much believe in you know Steve mentioned it, this medically necessary testing and, and having the provider make those decisions. Uh, we do offer a number of resources to help them. You know, our ETI reports that you mentioned would be one. We also do something called a summary report where they can see over the last quarter, the last six months, last year, whatever period they choose, at what their testing has looked like and what are they seeing in their practice. So they can think about modifying future testing policies or plans 
practices. Um, so we do provide a number of different resources to help them with that. But, you know, I, I think that there's another important question or, or, or piece of this to discuss. When we think about cost, I think about fentanyl. Again, it's the discussion we just had. It's fentanyl, it's methamphetamine, and cocaine. Fentanyl is associated with about 60% of the overdose deaths. Methamphetamine, 25% and climbing. Cocaine, 20% or so and, and climbing. Uh, not to the extent methamphetamine, but is climbing. What is the cost of not finding that true positive? You know, and, and as Steve mentioned, these false negatives are, it's not a small number. We've looked at some of that data ourselves. Now we offer immunoassay and definitive testing, but we've looked at um, the differences in terms of positivity rates. With definitive testing, you pick up an additional somewhere in 10 to 20% or higher for those three analytes specifically. And with some of these drugs, well, some of them, there are no, like you mentioned the nitazines, the fentanyl analogs. I mean, some of these things, there is no immunoassay testing, right? But even if we just focus on those three drugs that are associated with the most overdose death, we know with immunoassay testing, you're missing a significant number of those positives. And I always think of that as missed opportunity to intervene. And Steve and another one of our colleagues, uh, Adam Zatelny, were actually part of a study years ago where they went into, I'll let Steve speak to it, but where they went into a clinic uh, that was doing a lot of IA, this immunoassay-based testing, and, and then moved to more of a definitive-based approach. And the short story of it is over 50% of the patients had a reduction in drug, drug use some 75%, if I remember correctly, and Steve can correct me if, if right. I'm wrong, had um, uh, an increase in treatment intensity. And all of that came about because there was just you know, a greater truth known, right? There was more insight into truly the use by these different individuals that had been missed previously. Steve, will you speak to that? Yeah, yeah, and actually, we had had a, it was a residential treatment facility, and we had to work with them to put the pieces back together because um, it turned out that a, a, a good percentage, about half, as, as Eric said, of people that um, that they thought were not using drugs were using drugs because they were using the wrong kind of testing for that populate. Well, or they bumped up against the limits of that kind of testing for that population. And so we had to work with them, but we also taught the counselors how to use these more accurate results in their counseling sessions with the, with the clients. And it really worked out quite well. You know, the thing I wanted to say too, is, you know, we work closely with the payers. We have preferred relationships with some of them and so on. And we're working hard to keep, you know, the, the cost contained and all of that. I'm kind of hoping that with this other data that we're bringing to the table, and we're, I'm kind of hoping to have a series of kind of different conversations with the payers. I mean, good luck, right? But I, I, you know, I would like to see us all, doctors, patients, labs, you know, payers, start becoming like sort of partners in patient safety. And, 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 you know, where if we can assure them that we're taking every step we can internally to make sure that people are abiding by guidelines and not overusing the tool and all, and things like that, that, um, that, that they feel maybe a little bit, um, 
you know, that, that they could sort of lighten up a little bit on the gatekeeper function because, you know, you know, clinicians are faced with these patients coming in. The patients don't even know what they're taking. And now the clinician has to guess at which seven analytes to include on their, on their thing to stay on tier one. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's, uh, you know, we need to be partnering a bit more on keeping these people safe and, and, um, uh, and allowing them a little more leeway. And, and I think ultimately it'll save lives. I also believe it'll save costs um, because for the payers, I think, you know, if, if they, if the doctors could jump on things like fentanyl use earlier, you know, it's, it's obviously horrible when there's a when there's a fatal overdose. But what about all the costs of non-fatal overdoses and people ending up in ICUs and any emergency departments and things of that nature? I, I, I do think that more um, uh, um, uh, clarity about about who's using these drugs will ultimately um, pay dividends to the payers as well. Right. So. Um I, I don't know if you know, but my, my listeners who follow do, but uh, I, um, the Governor Newsom just passed SB 864, Tyler's Law. It's the first piece of legislation that I wrote, and it would require, starting January 2023, all hospitals in California to include fentanyl in their urine drug screens. So again, this is the immunoassay, um, not the more definitive um, screen, but I've been doing this now for uh, a few years, and the people who benefit from that are the patient because, again, I'll ask them, do you want to know if you have fentanyl in your system? They'll want to know. They'll, they'll, they're feeling different, and they don't know why, and I'll just ask, do you, do you want to figure that out? Do you want us to get a drug screen? And and they give me a urine sample, and then I'll tell them, you know, you have cocaine and fentanyl in your system, and, and that makes a de- change. They're going to go home and maybe throw away those fake pills of oxycodone or Xanax that they thought they were taking. They'll tell their friends. Who knows how many people's lives I've saved by, by that one interaction. Oh, but no it, telling. It's a hugely important point. I, yeah. you know, I can't tell you, in, in our business, um, you know, we're used to having patients say, I didn't do that, right? I didn't take that drug. But I'm telling you, more and more, we find ourselves, especially it relates to fentanyl, find ourselves in a position of believing them, that fentanyl has now infiltrated everything, especially as you just mentioned, these counterfeit tablets. They'll, they'll, you know, their intention is to take in a, um, you know, I'll say a street oxy or an illicit. No, I had a patient tell me it was a Viagra. I swear it was a yeah. Viagra. It's like, oh, look, you know, <laughs> hey, it, who knows? I'm telling you, and working with some of our partners and seeing some of their data, I've heard of Tylenol that, you know, it's it's a counterfeit Tylenol that's been spiked with fentanyl. And I was like, why would someone do Tylenol? And it was explained to me that for the user, it's a way to conceal what it is. You know, like me, if I just walk past that, I'm like, well, that's just a Tylenol bottle and a Tylenol. And, and now I'm sure you've seen these counterfeit tablets are remarkably similar, right, to the pharmaceutical product. And so I'm told that even to trained eyes without a microscope, you can't hardly tell the difference. And so... Um, it, it's, you know, I think what you're saying is, is, is absolutely spot on to be able to tell them, hey, there was actually fentanyl in that thing you're to, in that product you took may lead them into recovery if, uh, if that's warranted or the very least, to your point, get them to throw it away and rethink their choices. Right? I know. I mean, because yeah. you even have tolerant people, you know, people who have a history of being treated for pain 
who may think that they're buying a 30 milligram oxycodone on, on the street and they're perhaps used to taking 30 milligrams of oxycodone. But if it's got a milligram or more of fentanyl, you're when talking they about don't, they die. Eight, nine times as much drug as they're used to. They could overdose on one pill. There's no question about it. Yeah, yeah I, I'm a father of a 21 year or 22 now year old daughter and 15. And we have these conversations if not daily, weekly, you know, because I hear these stories, I see them, these tablets will be marked, as I said, I've heard Tylenol, Tramadol, uh, Adderall is a big one, right? Uh, yeah. And many times Adderall. It's good. It's definitely important to talk to your children about that. The The cost of the fentanyl, the, the cost of the fentanyl reagent for hospitals, and I guess, again, if this is an immunoassay, um, is about 75 cents per reagent, very very small amount. And so when I, I kind of posted this on, on LinkedIn and I had a, um, uh, a addiction psychiatrist saying, well, it costs me $100 to do a fentanyl test, um, uh, which is a barrier for him. Um, but I think that that's because he's probably ordering the definitive test, right? Instead of the, the screen. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be difficult to say without knowing all the specifics. Yeah. Um, but no, I love that Tyler's Law. I did see that, that you were part of that. I think that's a wonderful step forward that these individuals need to know what they're taking because they absolutely do not. And can I ask you about marijuana testing or THC? There are some institutions that are actually taking off THC from the drug panel. What is your experience with that? Yeah, we still see, uh, we actually... Um, published some of that work with our most recent signals report. In fact, I was looking at some of our 2022 data year to date just earlier this week. Uh, when I look within the SUD population and look at all of the samples that have come to the lab in 2022, about 65% of them are tested for THC. Uh, so we still see the majority of, of clinicians that are caring for those individuals choosing to test for it. Now, I will say that's uh, a lower percentage than what we would see with fentanyl and some of the others, methamphetamine, et cetera. Those typically run probably on average 75, 80%, something like that. Um, but we still- Those percentage are, is what is being asked for, not results, that's right? right. That's right. That's in what percent of samples are, are those things ordered, right? Is that physician mm -hmm. deciding for this patient- this is a medically necessary test, and about 65% or so of them had testing for THC. Uh, but I will tell you, I mean, there is a lot of interest in it. It's the reason we put it in signals. We found that in about 30% of samples nationally, we see THC, um, and it's significantly on the rise. Uh, you know, I, I typically will ask clinicians when I'm with them, what do you do with it? And it's there where I hear many different responses. You know, some are still um, at the point of they don't want to see it. And any THC is, is viewed as, a, you know, a significant a deviation from a treatment course. And, you know, there, there's a conversation had about that. But many others, it seems now, it seems like there's this kind of common theme of, if I find THC, I'm okay with it as long as I find what I've prescribed and I don't find anything else. I find that 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 kind of policy, if you will, 
more commonly that, and that's whether it's pain or treatment. You know, let's say it's a treatment patient. I've prescribed Suboxone. I will continue to prescribe that Suboxone. I will continue forward with everything we're doing as long as I find the Suboxone, even if I find THC. Now, if I find anything else, then that would be a different conversation and likely an, um, an elevation in care, more frequent monitoring, you know, belief that there's now at greater risk, there's something happening here. And I see the same in pain, the same exact kind of policy applied. I will continue to prescribe my oxycodone, whatever it is, as long as it's just THC there, but anything else, or if the, the prescribed oxycodone using that example is now missing, then, uh, then that's a problem. But, you know, it's, um, I typically don't weigh into those discussions and give my opinion because there's a lot of ones, you know, I don't know that I have yet an opinion on this, but it's, it's, it's been very interesting to see. I, how I think that that's a, that is the, the horizon that we need to address um, in a clinical medical setting. Um, because I, I agree with you. I see people just tolerating it um, and ignoring it. But then they're ignoring the medical risks as well. They're ignoring the, well, you're admitted for um, you know, a psychotic break or a manic break, and you're, you can't ignore the THC that's making it worse. Or your drug interactions. It's like, okay, I could ignore the THC, but you're on blood pressure medicines, and maybe that's why you're feeling dizzy and falling down. Um, or you're using THC and the oxycodone isn't working for you. Maybe if you quit THC, You'll, you'll have better results and better self-efficacy in your pain control if you weren't using marijuana. I think that those are, um, again, we're at the beginning of this marijuana wave um, and not addressing it as aggressively as we did um, with the opioids. And, you know, Ronit, you know, looking back on it, I hear so much in the rhetoric around marijuana these days that is so reminiscent of the rhetoric around opioids in the early 90s. Works for everybody, harms nobody, uh, works for everything under the sun. I mean, you know, the, the sort of push for more legal and available marijuana does, if I was back in the pain clinic as when I was, you know, for 25 years, you know, it does remove the idea that perhaps you know, I have to worry about someone that we're giving oxycodone to is going to someone who sells an illegal drug and perhaps is motivated to trade it or God knows what. It takes away a little bit of that. But that's about it. Alcohol is legal, too. And when I was working in a pain clinic and I'm trying to advance a person in their life and in their life goals and get them some pain control, I didn't want them drinking to excess all the time either. You know, and so, so you know, it, what Eric is saying um, this time, what you said about this sort of tolerating of it, it's, you know, I can't see making a kind of blanket clinic policy for a particular drug or whatever that doesn't take into account what the meaning of that finding is in every individual patient. Exactly. And that takes us to the beginning of our conversation. There's no cookie cutter um, uh, solution. It has to be individualized, but it can't get blanket okay, right? We can't just give more and more and more oxycodone to the point where our country is dying from oxycodone prescriptions, right? And uh, same thing with marijuana. I don't think we could just um, uh, ignore it and let, frankly, the potency of it go high and high and high to 100% where it's really more like methamphetamine now and think that that's okay. Right. Yeah, that was a big part of our signals work, reminding everyone of how it, it's 
it's, you know, the old thing you've heard so many times, it's not mom or dad's marijuana anymore. It's unbelievably different in terms of potency and everything that comes with that. Again, I noticed in looking at back some of your previous podcasts, you had so many guests speak to that. Uh, and they were all exactly right. It's, it's, it's different. As, as experts in drug testing, is there a way for someone to know, um, or for the doctor or patient to know, I'm taking this high-potency THC or I'm taking the, the old-fashioned low-potency THC? Or is, I don't think there is a way to know, oh, right? You know, we do have distribution curves that we're able to look at concentrations of THC, you know, all, all the analytes, our toxicologists have access to those. But the problem you run into is the same thing with alcohol. We, we, we get that question all the time. Was it, was it two drinks the night before or, you know, a, a fifth of something a week before? Mm-hmm. The same thing could apply here. It, it would be hard to know. Right. Especially with a drug that accumulates. In- yeah, exactly. That's the big question that that our toxicology team deals with so often. Is this this new marijuana use or is it uh, continued elimination of an older use? And, um, you know, that they're very good at sorting that out. But that's a common question. Words of advice to our audience who may be ordering drug tests or submitting uh, drug tests. Well, you know, I spent most of my career, um, you know, trying to get people to use all the tools that they had available, but to use them in a non-punitive way, in a non-judgmental way, you know, to to incorporate them and 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 use drug testing and the treatment of people with pain or substance abuse in a fashion that like was helpful to the patient. And you know, I I, I sit here and I can tell you, I talk to patient advocates all the time. I know there are an awful lot of people that have had some negative, an awful lot of negative experiences with drug testing. And, and so much so that it's kind of gotten to the point where it's kind of, you know, it's it's not just the expense or whatever, but also the 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 all the stigma and all the other stuff that sometimes comes with it. And I, you know, I spent so much of my career trying to help my clinician colleagues become better at communicating why they're doing a drug test and everything. And I think it's such a valuable tool when used correctly, but also like I would urge my colleagues who are using it to learn the vocabulary of doing it without stigmatizing people and, and to help them to appreciate how helpful it can be to them in, you know, without, um, without making them feel like they're, you know, they're, they're on trial or something. And, you know, I, it just drives me crazy sometimes when I hear about people who want to do away with it entirely because it's been used clumsily um, at times by people. And, you know, to me, that's an educational challenge, not, not an issue about whether or not drug testing can be helpful to people. Yeah, there's no question it can be used to advocate for the patient. It can be used to strengthen that therapeutic relationship between clinician and patient. And uh, I would love for some folks to kind of rethink that, everything Steve just said. And then the other thing I would say is, um, you know, and I see it in our reports, it's don't come into this, whether it's your ordering patterns, frequency, any of that with some fixed position because we're seeing a rapidly evolving drug supply. You know, we talked about how fentanyl is moving rapidly west, methamphetamine east. Uh, you know, stay abreast of what these trends look like and use that information to um, you know, provide a greater insight into what your patients may in fact be taking, whether they know it or not. Yeah, and keep them safe. Keep yeah, them safe. Keep, right, right. 
safety. That's a good way to, to end things. And I want to say thank you to Dr. Kevin Zakharoff for your question, um, your publication, and lots of health and healing to your patients. And thank you to you, Dr. Steve Pasek and Dr. Eric Dawson. Eric and Steve, thank you so much for joining us, educating us um, about testing, drug trends, and a lot of success in your work as well. Thank you thank so you much. So much. Yeah. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit IsaacOne.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their medical library translated for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Thank you.